Welcome to Cyber Synapse, the podcast that's creating connections through cyberspace with candid conversations about cyber and tech-related issues with your host, Kath Nibbs. Do you know your GDPR from your ISO? Is your business cyber secure? If not, give agency a call on 03455 760 999. You can visit their website at www.theagency.com. An agency is with an I, not a Y. Welcome to this week's episode. Um, For those of you watching the videos, you're probably visually astute about how I do uh, my introduction videos. Um, uh, Anyway, today's episode is with uh, Rachel Cowart, um, and I'm recording this on an extremely windy day, and uh, you might might be able to hear that um, in the background, so I apologise for that. Um, Okay, this week is the book that I discussed with Rachel um, that she's written for parents. It's a really, really easy, succinct guide. Um, I've actually passed it to one parent already. Um, so I'm awaiting some feedback on how they found it um, because it wasn't me lecturing them yet again on how addiction's not a thing, how aggression's not a thing, and violent video games don't create violent people. Um, so we talk about her book, which has got, um, uh, again, some of the topics that we covered in Tony's episode kind of around the, the uh, misogyny, uh, not really going in depth into feminist issues. Um, we talked about kind of um, uh, activity levels with children, so kind of obesity. Um, we talked about the gaming for good. So obviously this is a, a hashtag, it's a phrase, it's a way of saying that actually there are so many positives to gaming. Um, Rachel's done quite a lot of research on this and this is what we really talk about in her um, in her interview. And also I cover um, just chatting with her about Get This, which is about providing um, support for people who are designing the games and what they may need. Um, this is the, the last in a quick section. So I've just done three interviews on games, gaming. Um, we did the one on mental health just before that as well. Uh, next week, we do dive back into the topics um, that are slightly uncomfortable. And there will be a few of those this year, as I'm aware, you know, that this is the stuff I need to share. Um, I really enjoyed talking to Rachel, hopefully um, with some of her other research and some of the things that are coming out this year and, and the way that cyberspace is moving. I hope to speak to her again. Um, in the meantime, if you are able to check out South by Southwest, uh, Rachel will be there. Um, she does some of the PAX meetings. So this is all stuff that happens in uh, the United States. Unfortunately, we don't do it in the UK. Um, anybody really want to volunteer to do it? Because that would be awesome amazing and all of the other kind of things that sound like i'm I'm back in the 80s um see you all next week um again i'm going to leave the marketing bit because i just kind of feel like i'm badgering on about it um so have a great week and i'll see you next time welcome to cyber synapse this week i'm joined by dr rachel cowart and dr rachel cowart has written a book about um video games you can kind of see the thing going on here and I'm going to talk to both her and you about kind of games and, and just keep adding on to this narrative that we've got. Um, now, Rachel, you're a clinical researcher? Yes, I'm a research psychologist. Yeah. I like to hang out with a lot of clinicians like Dr. Bain and uh, that you interviewed before. <laughs> yeah. So what, what's, uh, what's currently on the, the menu of your um, research? What are you kind of interested in right now? Well, these days I like to focus my work mostly on games for good. I feel like we have done decades of research now on looking at what the potential negative impacts of games are. And while some of those questions remain a little up in the air, like we're still talking about video game addiction, for instance, um, other debates are pretty well settled, like the links between video game and violence or the links between playing online games and social outcomes. Uh, No, they don't make us antisocial. So these days I like to focus more on looking at what can games do for us that are positive? What are the educational benefits? What are the social benefits? Ah, amen. (laughs) Right? (laughs) That would be the end of the podcast if I could just get that one sentence into every single school education system and therapy practice in the United Kingdom. However... (laughs) <laughs> we're at yeah we're at a stage where um you see I quite like that hashtag you know gaming for good um I I actually did an interview with a father whose son was um 
he were, had been um, diagnosed with a brain tumour and was using the games to actually spend a lot of his time accessing kind of like, as, as Tony would put it, his archetype in order to manage the pain and, and the difficulties. Um, so I see the benefits kind of all over. And I think that's what we were going to do was kind of start off with the book. Um, so I do have the book here for those that are interested. Um, again, one of the issues is I'm finding that all of the gaming books are tending to come from the US. Um, so, uh, for example, Jamie's, Tony's, uh, Pat Markey's and Chris Ferguson's. Um, hopefully we may get a book out of uh, maybe Amy Auburn and Andrew Shabelsky. Maybe they might write one because they seem to be right at the forefront of the mental health issue debate in this country. Um, but your your book is broken down into those topics, isn't it? So the first one is, is it? Addiction first and then violent video games. Anyway, yeah, it doesn't matter. Um, and then towards the back, you've got two areas that I'm really interested in talking to you about, which are kind of the gaming for good in terms of cognitive, uh, social development and the things that children are able to do. And you also have uh, one of the sections, you've got um, the flow channel um, description in there from Mihai Chicks at Mihai. Now, there's only Tony I have ever come across that also knows about this in terms of kind of gaming, and, and I'm quite a geek on that. So, um, yeah, can we talk about how you set out your book and how come we tend to do things in the negative and then the positive? So it's it's very much about your advice is the take home message. I really like how you've done that in your book, actually. So, oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, I want to make sure I didn't want to write a book that was just sprouting information. Like yeah. I'm a researcher. I like those kinds of books, but you know, parents and social workers and policymakers, they don't like those kinds of books necessarily. So I wanted to make sure that at the end, it was very clear, like, this is what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Games are not all bad. Games um, if anything, you know, I like to say they're more good than bad, but at the very least they're neutral. Right. Mm -hmm. Whereas we have this overwhelming desire to pinpoint games as being something that is addictive, makes us violent, uh, makes us antisocial, makes us links us to obesity, all of these things that aren't necessarily true if you look at actually the research that's there. Um, when I developed the book, deciding what topics to do, I picked the topics that were most often discussed by parents and policymakers. What is it that people want to know about? They want to know about video games and violence. I know that I feel like that debate has been dragged on for far too long. But a lot of that information really doesn't trickle out of the ivory tower. Like it's in research articles or it's in research books, but it's not really written in a way that anyone can access it. And that was really the goal to do with this book. Like, okay, let's talk about video games and violence. What's the take home message? We've been studying it for decades and mm -hmm. we don't have any links to video games and violent crime. Yeah. What is just the simple one-liner <laughs> that if you take nothing else from this podcast, there you go. Um, yes. Uh, well, I think that was, I said, how did I speak to Pat Market? I said, I really like your book. It's not full of bullshit. Okay. Um, uh, which was a really nice, succinct way of saying the evidence is there and I've yeah. actually stolen his, uh, there, sorry, it's Pat uh, Ferguson and Marky, isn't it? I've mm -hmm. stolen their uh, metaphor of ice cream sales and, um, yeah. you know, hot weather. I think that is just yeah. such a good way to explain it to parents um, and how how the, the, the research culture doesn't always come across in the media very well and it's misinterpreted through, you know, correlation and causation getting mixed up and people saying, well, this must equal this. Exactly. I also, yeah, I also think the media drives a lot of it, such as, um, so, like the recent, I'm going to go with a gaming example here, the recent gaming um, uh, incident where somebody actually took a weapon into um, the, was it the NFL, NFA even, uh, the gaming thing, was it Jacksonville? Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. yes. Yeah. That's, that's just popped in my head as we're talking about, actually. And that was immediately, I went onto Twitter when I'd seen that, and I just thought, uh, oh, here we go. It's now um, Football League that's now that's now attributed to, uh, yeah. Yeah. Gaming, gaming does not cause. And what I like about the research is actually the links in, in kind of around kind of the causations and correlations get mixed up and then the media take the spin on it. And, and unfortunately, I think that's what parents and perhaps 
perhaps some policymakers, perhaps some organisations do buy into. And it's really nicely written, your book, because it isn't overloaded with research. You've kind of done that little thing where you say most research says, and then if people really want to go and find out who it is, they can go to the back, pick the piece of research up and go and have a look at right, it. Right, right, exactly. And, um, you know, about the media overblowing everything, um, makes better headline. It's a much better headline. And also, as humans, like if you want to take like a more psychological, esoteric, you know, top-down view. They want simple answers. Somebody does something horrible. I don't want to know it's because they grew up in an environment and that was violent or they have a low frustration tolerance if we assess their personality. I want to know it's because they played a lot of Grand Theft Auto. That's easy. I can understand that. And I'll just put them in that little box and that's what it is. And it's simpler, but it's not true. (laughs) Yeah. So what... What do you think was the most surprising finding as you were writing your book? So I, I think you were clearly aware of the, the um, and I want to use the acronym VVG because that, that's kind of how violent video games is. is succinct. And I think that's because I keep typing it, you know, VVG <laughs> and kind of the mental health debate as well. So I've kind of covered those with um, Tony and with Amy Auburn. So what did what did you find most fascinating or most illuminating as you wrote your book? For me, the part of the whole research scheme that's been most interesting to me from the very beginning is the social communities that revolve around gaming. And at one point, I played a lot of World of Warcraft. That was really my initial interest in even studying the uses and effects of online games. And from the outside in, it looks so antisocial. I understand why that perception exists. I'm in my room with headphones on. I might not even be talking at the time. And your parents see their child like they're alone in their room all of these hours. What are they doing? And you don't realize what communities are being formed, that these friendships are very close, that these friendships are very real, that these friendships transfer offline to online and online to offline. Yeah. And for me, I think that was the mo- it was validating for one because I didn't think that I was particularly antisocial. I knew when I was playing games that I was being social and I was making friends. Um, But I think it's important for parents to know that too. It's not also just about playing with strangers. Of course, stranger danger, you should be aware if you have little children playing online games for sure. But it's also about I'm playing with my friend who I used to live next door with in Texas and now we can play Fortnite together three times a week and I can maintain that relationship through doing something fun, through a shared activity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think, um, so I'm uh, currently writing another book at the moment and I'm talking about anti-social is not anti-connected. Mm-hmm. that's that's what I'm finding is for these these children they are connected so just before Christmas I had two ladies on um two young ladies that talked about Snapchat and they said how they might be holding you know the equivalent of 40 different conversations throughout the day mm-hmm. and whilst that looks like their faces uh, in to quote them in their phone actually what that means is that they're holding lots and lots of different conversations that begin in the morning they go to school they continue them after school they've got you know, um, conversations that are international as well as um, close communities from school. And it it doesn't necessarily mean that there is this anti-social. And I think, again, it's layman's terminology that gets mixed up with pathology. And I think that's, for me, that's probably my little gripe. Right. And that's the same gripe about addiction, right? It's getting twisted it's not exactly what's happening but someone attaches this label onto it oh online gaming is antisocial. oh my child plays a lot of video games they're addicted and that's it now it's pathologized now it's a problem yeah yeah because that's kind of how you've talked about the addiction debate isn't it in, mm-hmm. in your book is um just because there's um a lot of play <laughs> does not yeah it, it is something i have ranted um i've actually ended up doing an article on um medium because one of uh, the Canadian residents, uh, Gabor Mate, talks about attachment and uh, addiction. And yet when he's talking about the technology debate, he talks about addiction and and that it's replacing um, connection and and so on and so forth. And I'm saying, hang on a minute. Yeah, as a as an attachment researcher, an attachment um, specialist, you're also forgetting that half of the narrative because it fits to say it's addiction when it's not it could be both, if not one nor the other. Right. And it's and it's not a replacement. Everyone thinks of it as a replace. It's a supplement. It's a complement. It yeah. can compensate for people who have social anxiety. It can compensate for, look, I can talk to you when you're across the ocean. Like yeah. It's not replacing anything necessarily. Yeah. So that, that kind of brings us really, this kind of swings neatly into, yeah. um, so this is where 
games really are for good. You know, um, in terms of what you've just said there, some of the children I work with talk about having anxiety or, or you know, even as even as far down as a child who has a skin disorder mm-hmm. does not go out and socialise. So actually what they choose to do is play games because nobody can see their psoriasis and eczema. Exactly. I mean, online communication provides so many what I call social accommodations. Yeah. You, first of all, you don't have to worry about right your physical appearance. And it's not just about if you have a skin condition. It could also be about if you're socially hesitant, right? A lot of times you can communicate using text-based communication. So you can have time to think about what it is you're saying. You can craft what you're saying. You don't have to have that nervousness of, do I have to look at them in the eyes and respond immediately? You have built-in excuses for these delays in responding, you know, because you have all the actions uh, in the game more so than you would in like a chat room. It provides so many accommodations for so many things. And it's, I don't know why this isn't like yelled from the rooftops. (laughs) Well, I am going to say this is where my feisty rantiness does come in because actually I also see that this is one of the issues is if, if you took text speak, Mm-hmm. Now, I'm hoping to do, I don't know, 20 other different um, research <laughs> projects alongside what I'm doing at the minute. Yeah. One of them would be if you took a child who had a diagnosis of um, ADHD or ADD or autism, if you were to then sit down and look at their text chat, you would not see them as um, as colloquially, they call it socially awkward penguin um, over here. I don't know if you get the same phrase. No. Um, so children who are classed as socially awkward penguins really don't struggle with that in the the online domain and they may have this conversation like you said that's crafted forwards and backwards they have their time to reflect before they're responding whereas in in real life they feel that kind of fear surge and then they look oh, oh, and people right. say oh, they're autistic or wow right. and then they're getting what's the word i'm looking for social um success they're having social success whereas in face-to-face conversations they might have a really hard time doing that yeah Yes, I'm I'm with you that this ought to be shouted and hollered from, yeah. um, I think I might have tweeted something like that yesterday about, um, what was it that came out? Um, oh, that was it, um, that somebody in this country, one of the MPs decided to do the pornography and violent video games are causing a nation of, uh, yeah, and I think I just put crock of shit. Uh, it just retweeted it with crock of shit. I, there are times I do not have the lexical ability to even respond and kind of say this is where we're coming from because actually there's so much research that kind of does not support this yeah I think that's Um, what it is the research is overwhelming (laughs) but we're having the same public dialogues I I mean at this point it becomes unclear as to what we can actually do to make it clear that this is not supported in Mm -hmm. decades of research yeah, I'm. I'm thinking toddler tantrum. That's that's the route I'm heading. <laughs> it seems to be. <laughs> it seems to be the only kind of thing that works. Um, so we we've recently had the Momo debate issue thing oh, yeah. going on right. in this country, and again, um, I think I ended up. Um, I'm not. I'm not going to swear again. But I lost. I lost my head. Um, and by Tuesday of last week, I've just written a blog saying, you know, if if I was a child perpetrator or I wanted to create a platform where I could recruit people or whatever it was, radicalization, terrorism, whatever it was I was looking at, I would do exactly what happened with this Momo debate because it was fear and myth that just sold it on behalf yeah. of a thing that didn't exist. You know, this hoax was such an interesting. Um, facilitation by the fear response of human beings mm-hmm. for sure yeah <laughs> and I think I think that's what we're I'm going to say fighting against so this this is why I'm, I'm doing this podcast as I keep saying you know what and I'm saying to people you know you really need to listen to the research you really need to listen to the debate um that conference I presented at I had somebody say yeah but it's addiction though isn't it Kath and I said no it's not social media is not like a line of coke it just is not um and I was kind of getting myself really het up yeah. Um, hence hence I was kind of hoping for maybe a bit more than I don't know what to do uh, in terms of where we're at at the minute so I'm, I'm kind of trying to rally my mates I think that's what I'm doing is saying I'm not on my own am I please tell me this is not you're me. not you're not there's a whole community of us yeah um yeah. so I think yeah where do we go from here so Towards towards the end of the book, you do talk about kind of the, the social aspects in terms of, I mean, I, I just want to talk about um, kind of your book constantly now for the next hour, if that's okay, <laughs> yeah, um, that's and, and, <laughs> and promote it. But we also had um, uh, another 
quick conversation just before we started that you also run a not-for-profit. Yes, um, I don't I don't run it. I am the research director of it. It's called Take This um, because uh, it's too dangerous to go alone and it's okay to not be okay. Uh, what we do is we provide mental health resources and information to the gaming community and to the game creating industry. So yeah. I run their research program. Um, so we focus on things that are specifically of interest to those particular groups, people who play games and people who make games. Mm -hmm. So do you, do you find there's an overlap in terms of, um, A, the research that we've been talking about? I, I suspect there would be. Um, <laughs> the kind, I mean, I, I know, as, as we said just before we started, I've, I've come from uh, a gaming industry mm -hmm. uh, sort of background, um, which is actually, which is really interesting because when I was in the, the foyer, I noticed that, um, so I was just transitioning into training as a psychotherapist at that point in time. And I, I would be in the building and the, the children would come in and they'd go, oh, look at that, because I will come on to this topic in just a second. Um, Who's that, Kath? Um, uh, that looks like a really interesting robot. And they'd be talking about this robot as though it was a male character. And it wasn't. Mm. It was Thomas. And and I'd be going, do you know this is a girl? This yes. is a girl. Yes, yeah. that's why it's, it wasn't anything to do with me or anything, but oh, it was interesting. so interesting, the narrative of the expert, because it looks like a robot. Um, yeah. And I'm just wondering, actually, in terms of the gaming industry, if there is, again, um, I'm going to kind of just ask you off the top of my head about yeah. the spread about males, females, because the gaming industry that I'm aware of, most of the gaming designers are males. Uh, Correct. In, in terms of um, percentages. And yet the gaming, in, if you look at the, the spread now, I think we're about 50-50, aren't we? I think the yes. latest, whatever it was I was reading the other week. Yes. And if anything, I think it might be even slightly more females. It's very close to 50-50 now. Um, the gaming industry is getting better. It is notoriously male-dominated. Mm -hmm. And I think this leads to a lot of... Um, the issues that crop up in the news about the way that females are treated in some of these companies and some of these industries. There was that recent scandal about Riot Games and um, some other big name companies um, that females are not being treated particularly well. So there's a theory um, that because video games have always been thought of as a boy's toy, right? more girls than boys play them now or equal girls and boys play them now. But in our youth, right, it was very much something that was male stereotyped activity. If you were a girl who played video games, that was weird. And this has carried on today. That's why you have fake gamer girl stereotypes and these kinds of things that crop up as well. But because it's sex stereotype is a male activity, the argument is more men go into the industry than women. This in turn affects the content that's being created, which is why female protagonists are few and far between. And when we have them, they're hypersexualized. And this perpetuates the cycle of men playing more games, men making more games, less female characters, more male dominance. It is a girl, Metroid. Um, yeah, yeah. Ah. I mean, well, around the corner was Lara Croft. So you came in and there was, that, and funnily enough, I can't remember who they had on the corridor because it was like a building that just went up and up and up and they, they'd have all the other characters um, going up. But it was so interesting that the two female characters were there in the foyer for people to see straight away. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and how interesting, the young, um, all I'll say is that the young children used to go up and touch Lara Croft in particular areas. So interesting. Yeah. Four yeah. and five-year-olds. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. It's crazy. So I wonder then, just as I'm doing a little bit of extrapolation here, I wonder if the mental health of game designers is to do with kind of the, the environments in which the games are designed, which might well be, you know, severely male orientated and that males don't often talk about mental health issues or how they're feeling as much as women. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. That can absolutely contribute to it. Mm -hmm. uh, combined with the high levels of stress that tend to be associated with game development in general, you know, working long weeks and having crunch time and all of those sorts of things. And then you combine the toxic behavior on social media, Twitter in particular, directed towards game developers and game designers when a game, there's, they don't like something in their game, right? There's a lot of toxic behavior specifically directed to game designers and developers, uh, which also contributes to the stress. Yeah. Yeah, and obviously, if you've got um, AAA rating games, um, I don't think we talk like that anymore, do we? In t terms of AAA rated games, we kind of go. I think they do. 
Maybe. And, and indie developers. Maybe those are the only two categories now. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say it's now. Is it, is it something all children play or is it one of those old hat games, you know, one of the, one of the older games? Because I'm, I'm seeing a little bit of a research in um, maybe old retro kind of games. Yeah, it is. I think, well, that ties in um, to like the nostalgia of it all. I think that the retro, the pixel art, the 8-bit games that are coming back, it's because gamers like us who played those kinds of games when they were new um, are now with children, right? So we see these kinds of games and they tap into our feeling of childhood and tap into our feeling of nostalgia. And I think that's why they're doing so well because... They're, uh, they're playing to our preferences. <laughs> they know that we'll like it. I, w- I once punished, that, that's, uh, that would be their recollection. I once punished my children about 15 years ago and showed them a Commodore 64 game and kind of put the tape in and said, it's so exciting this next bit because you get to hear the computer language and you have to wait for at least three and a half minutes just for the yeah. game to load. Yeah. And they were like, what is, what is this? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I got a classic Super Nintendo for my daughter. She's four for Christmas. And she was like, "Mm, not interesting. I'm like, come on, original Zelda. No, I didn't want it. Yeah. Well, actually, that would be something to uh, kind of tap into. I know it's not in your book, but you're you're an online gamer and you've already mentioned uh, World of Warcraft was your your thing, wasn't it? Yes, it was. How have you found that as a female gamer? It kind of behind the current 50-50 split? Oh, yeah. I mean, um, I got a lot of advice from other female gamers that you don't use a microphone (laughs) because once they find out you're a female, that's when, you know, a lot of interesting different things happen. I would say I did get a lot of, um, like, user-to-user messages that were inappropriate. Mm -hmm. But I think that was just part of the course. I mean, thankfully, I mean, I have, like, tough skin and it didn't so bother me I just kind of ignored them or blocked them or whatever it might be but for some people um the harassment like that it it turns you off from playing online games at all or it keeps you from ever telling anyone you're a female player that's still very much a reality for a lot of female players in online games yeah um I I kind of concur in, in terms of, and, and I'm just thinking about the empathy. So I, uh, I was the first woman to do my trade in the armed forces. So mm-hmm. I went into um, very, very high level uh, male orientated play, um, engineer, engineering. And um, I kind of went in and um, I'd have tasks like I'd have to hold um, a tank laser sight in the tank and I'd be trying to fix it together. And there'd be so many different heads in the tank, you know, waiting for me to drop it and kind of, oh, can you do it? Can you do it? Look, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. It's the same. It's the same. Yeah. So yeah. I, I'm wondering then if there's if there's a little bit of a um, so this slightly takes us off the gaming for good. But mm-hmm. do you think there's a, an opportunity here for there to become maybe a narrative for females about support in the gaming industries? And because I'm just thinking about that, not so much anti-misogyny in terms of you know kind of what I do sit in and not so much let's write a feminist book about because I know that, um, I've talked about that with Tony last week in in his Zelda book because one of the chapters is about feminism isn't yes. it in women and so on but I'm just thinking about that must have been really difficult for the the young female gamers to not be disclosing who they were in terms of yeah. being able to engaged of course of course because you are already automatically perceived as being less skilled at what you do right like you were saying with what you were doing uh, in the military you are open yourself up to harassment which is completely ridiculous you shouldn't have to be exposed to that kind of harassment just because you're in a space that has a lot of male characters and they're hiding behind the veil of anonymity online and I think for a lot of women it is still difficult like the culture is changing right we're talking more about it there are more ways to report this kind of behavior there are more ways to make this behavior more visible but I saw a hideous clip the other day of a streamer on Twitch and she was talking to someone who was watching them and they were graphically describing like how they were going to sexually assault them and it's like how is this still a thing that you can like report but they won't necessarily get blocked and then they can come back and they can continue this harassment and it's just it's terrible it's still an ongoing very rampant problem yeah and I think I think there's also the narrative of um, you know the misogynistic language has been a thing for a long, long time. And I'm not I'm not saying it's uh, you know right, wrong, or, or or whatever because I don't tend to have that kind of attitude. Um, there is something around 
where does it come from and you know how did how did this begin because I mean just listening to some of Jamie's podcasts Mm -hmm. um, kind of talks about actually there is there is a social norm that exists in games and people do have conversations with each other and say you know hey man don't don't say that to her Um, and and that seems to be getting much better I don't think we have the bystander effect as much as we used to and I find it with young children the same for cyberbullying if you want to call it you know because cyberbullying is so big but they do stand up for each other so I'm wondering if the more females that frequent the games, the less this will happen or be tolerated. Not so much it won't happen because it might happen between direct messages. Right, right. I think for sure. And when women band together, we can achieve anything. So for sure. I think it's also about, um, like you mentioned, the younger generation. It's about the boys also being taught. This is not okay. If you hear someone talking this way, you know, you should say something. And I think it is happening more because the education is there now and they're being taught like, this is not funny. This has severe mental health repercussions. Some people who are um, trolled and cyberbullied to the point they have PTSD, like it is a real issue. Yeah, yeah. it's, it's uh, vitri- I think one of my favorite sentences in my definition is something about it's vitriolic. Yeah. It's like yeah. I've said, it's, it's like poison to some children. It seeps into their bones and it becomes yeah. p- part of their psyche. Um, yeah. and, it, and one of the things I do know, and this is just to go totally off topic here, Brene Brown talks about, um, you know, how stories uh, become our, you know, become our soul. But also, if you think about the one shaming incident that you have from your childhood, you can bet your bottom dollar it was something to do with somebody who said something to you about you. And you still remember it. Absolutely. Yeah. And then it's even worse online because one, it's public and now it's witnessed by other people. I mean, I can remember times when people said mean things to me as a child, but at least it was just directly towards me. It wasn't, you know, on my Facebook page or, you know, in a, in a game of League of Legends where all my other friends are witnessing it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I think that's one of the biggest sections of my book is actually explaining to parents that gaming has, it has so many beneficial parts. And whilst... Yeah. You know, well, I do. I do look at the negatives, and I am writing about the negatives. It's it's to allow parents to understand. Um, so I think I've on a few podcasts I've talked about what I call the spaghetti test. We all know how long it takes to cook spaghetti if we're an adult, and even that has variants. You know, if you want to do something al dente, if you want to cook wholemeal, um, when you're playing a game that has different save points, that has different. You know, um, let me see whether you've got to capture the flag, whether you've got to do something together as a team or whether you're working alone, a campaign, et cetera, et cetera. And that parents really do need to have conversations to find out what the game is before they promptly walk in and, and create a situation that's then escalated the following day at school because of something that happened online that other people heard and so on and so forth. I think yeah, that, yeah. That, part, that part of my book's taken. I think I've got something like 30,000 words. But see, that is... It's one of the most important points is parents, not even just about what's happening in the game. If you, parents have such concern over what they're doing online. Okay. I understand not everyone wants to play games. I get that. Mm -hmm. But you can at the very least ask your child about what games are you playing? What do you do in this game? Do you capture the flag? Do you play with friends from school? Why do you like playing this game? And you can at least get an general sense anyone can have that conversation over the dinner table of who they're playing with what they're doing oh hey are, do you, are your friends nice to you when you play these games or is it you know is it a bunch of lads playing these games like who are you with um at least have a general sense of what they're doing before you just dismiss it as something that is unhealthy or before you it's too late and you realize oh my child's being bullied every day when he's playing Fortnite with his friends and they're really mean to him and they leave him out and this and that and the other thing yeah well it's it's been um probably the highest the highest issue around safeguarding concerns when I've been working with um clients so not that they've been playing you know you'd think the safeguarding issues might be about um they've played a game that for example was an 18 rated or whatever right those issues tend to be far far less than kind of what we're discussing at the moment right right and it's important and when you think about the public discussion about games it tends to be the other way people tend to focus oh they're playing on games with content that is in age inappropriate and it's like well we should really be talking about who they're interacting with in these games Um, absolutely, because the premise behind um, Call of Duty and um, let me see, what else might there be that's similar? Um, uh, Fortnite. 
slight, slight sarcasm there. <laughs> they are the same bloody game premise, aren't they? It's right. about taking a weapon and shooting somebody and, you know, and yet we'll say, yes, but Call of Duty is horrific because of this, this and this and because it's got an 18 rating. And yet Fortnite is OK. Because when, when I say to parents, do you understand what the game is? Have you ever asked them what the purpose of the game is? You know, what they do in the game? And if you listen to a five-year-old describe Fortnite, it sounds like they're on the battlefield. Right. Right. I have a colleague I worked with in Germany named Malta Elson, and he did a beautiful study where he modified a game. It was a first-person shooter game. I don't remember what game he modified, but in one version you played, you shot a gun and it was bloody and you killed <coughs> the enemy. And in the other version, it was the exact same thing, except you shot like bubbles and the person just disappeared. And what he measured is before and after aggression effects, and there were none equally. Right? So it doesn't matter if it's bubbly and happy like and colorful like Fortnite or if it's super detailed and graphic, like Call of Duty, the effects are the same. Yeah. Well, that, that, I think that's in, is it Andrew Shabilsky's research that they did a peppers? Is it the hot peppers? I think. You, oh, yeah, he did that as well. Yeah. 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 yeah exactly. In terms of how much hot pepper. Well, we, we've seen that in Milgram as well. And we've seen that in, it's yeah. got nothing to do with gaming, has it? On, on, right. And it's, um, you know, and I, and I keep saying it's the background of the child that's more important than the activity that they're engaging in because yes. you'll find quite often that a, a securely attached child does not behave in the same way that an insecurely attached child does for very different reasons. Mm-hmm. And, and, and I think that's, for me, because of my job and kind of the paradigm that I come from, that's, that's kind of what I'm talking about. But this is, um, I'm just thinking about what else, what else I'm going to kind of go. So the, the topic were, um, so you've got... One of the points that I wanted to talk about was, and I did this with Jamie Madigan, it totally fell out of my head while I was talking to <laughs> Oh, obesity. You mentioned it earlier. Yes. Yes. And how, yeah. yeah. How extended periods of playing games um, doesn't actually lead to obesity. That might just be the amount of food that children are eating and the fact that they're not doing other things when they're at school and so on. It might just be about a sedentary lifestyle, which us as humans have evolved into over centuries um yeah it's about everything it's about a whole lifestyle it's not just about the one activity they do and also it's hard to blanketly blame video games especially this day and age when we have augmented reality games like pokemon right which actually gets children up and moving and not sitting in front of the computer um yeah and what did you say in your book that was it um something don't drive when you're looking for pokemon go the number of adolescents because obviously we have a slightly different uh, driving age in this country but yeah. the number of adolescents um and there was a video on uh, youtube and it was just it was trending in in the united kingdom of some lads and and the police officer turned up and it went on for about 10 minutes and the police officer said uh, what are you doing and the guys were all like oh not a lot kind of dead sheepish <laughs> eight minutes it transpired into it they were looking for a pokemon that's hilarious <laughs> and, I was just, yeah, and that's the state because the police officer thought they were in inverted commas up to no good right right and, and, and just... yet, they were they were playing a computer game that's in, so cute yeah <laughs> just um in in fact i think my my eldest would disappear off out in the car and when he'd come back he'd be like yeah i've got i've got a weebly or i've got a, okay so mine, mine young enough to grow up with the original Pokemon. So yeah. it, whenever they talk Pokemon, I kind of understand what they're on about. Um, and again, I think that's I think that's a point I'm going to come back to the the kind of asking your children. Whilst I had um, the geekiness in me to try and play the games with the children and ask them, you know, what are you doing? Who's that? How do you know that? I think yeah. I said to Jamie last the the other week. Um, what used to what used to surprise me was they'd be headset on, you know, playing the games, and I'd, and and they'd say over here, and I'd be going, "How does your mate know where you mean?" Yeah, you know, it took me quite a few quite a few months to actually work out that because they were all playing the same game, they knew exactly where they meant. Yeah, uh, you know, and they, they knew that when they said certain things, that what they wanted them to do was go over and do this and do that and do the other. And right. I'm really impressed, um, and I don't know actually if there is any research about the amount of information children can hold in terms of so I'm going off on another one of my I'd love to do a project on this um when I look at for example if we go with something like cod um and they've got the heads up display they've got map in the corner they've got the weapons they've got their ipad and some of the children have their ipad at the side so they don't have to turn away from the screen to swap their weapons and so on and so forth 
I'm wondering how much information a, a child's brain can hold per second. So I think the most research says it's about 120 bits per second that we can deal with. These these games have got to have much, much more than that coming at you in, in one go. Yeah. I mean, I don't know on that level. I'm sure that would be a very interesting study. Um, there's definitely research that shows that it can improve multitasking skills and your ability to notice changes in your peripheral vision because you're training it that, yes. for hours a day. So it makes sense that you would be able to, that it would relate specifically to the amount of information you could hold. Which may transpire, I'm just thinking, which may transpire as a child who looks like they've got ADHD if they're sitting in a classroom and noticing things that are moving, changing, um, and, and teachers um, using the, the psychopathology language of um, they're distracted. Well, it's possible. They're just being observant. Um, absolutely. And it doesn't... It, it kind of comes to a point where I, I sit with children in therapy and we do so a lot of the stuff we do in the sand tray as well as running around um, being superheroes and stuff, which is fab fun. Um, but the, the stuff in the sand tray is really, really slow and measured and they, they know exactly what they need to do. And, and I don't find that they are distracted. I can spend 45 minutes in a sand tray with a child who has this gaming disorder or gaming addiction or whatever else it, it is that they turn up at my office with. Um, yeah. That's the other thing, too, about ADHD. Parents complain, my children can't focus, but they can sit for three hours and focus mm -hmm. on Fortnite. Yeah. yeah. Um, yes, it seems to, it's, it's a bit like the context-dependent learning, isn't it? Well, right. if it's in this context, then it's not universal. Therefore, does it make a distance? And, and that would just be my critique of the psychopathology yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, manuals that exist at the moment. Right. I, I'm, I'm also, again, interested in um, kind of the idea of flow. So um, I'm part of, actually, I'm not sure where they are. Um, they used to be down in, or they are in Texas, um, the Flow Genome Project. So they're interested in how people get into flow. And one of the things that they looked at was um, possibly working with some gaming companies. And I, I've kind of taken their research and their knowledge um, because when we're actually in flow, there's, we, we produce all of the, the lovely neurotransmitters and chemicals and so on, but there's also two that are only visible in flow, which is one of them's called anandamide. And I was really interested in, wouldn't it be a great experiment to work out when children were in flow by, you know, I don't know, take a saliva swab or something. Because if children are in flow, they're actually getting much, much more embodied intensive learning mm -hmm. than right. they do in other, other places. Yes, yes. And games are wonderful wonderful tools for initiating flow yeah. so flow is happens when you match challenge with skill right and a game that's made correctly gradually matches challenge with skill as the child mm -hmm. goes on and a lot of the learning that I talk about in my book um, a lot of learning that happens when you play games is unintentional so going back to like the multitasking or going back mm -hmm. to noticing changes in peripheral vision uh, Call of Duty wasn't created in order to train that um, but it in unintentionally is teaching us how to do all of these things. And in, like you say, and if you're in the state of flow, if you're fully engaged, you're learning it, you know, tenfold or whatever it might be. Yeah. Well, it, um, the other, there are kind of neurochemical markers and things that happen. So I think one of them is hyper, uh, temporal hyperfrontality, which is, um, and, and I did say, this is not an academic podcast, so I'm just going to try. <laughs> that actually means that the front part of your brain switches off. So the internal critic and the narrative, well, if you're a child, and, and this is why I do what I do, I suppose, if you're a child that's coming from a house where there's constant rowing between your parents or, you know, there's maybe domestic abuse or you're a full-time carer for your parent or you've got social anxiety issues, that's the one place you can almost just be you. And I think I've said to Tony last week, these children embody what they're doing in for for example his book Zelda they embody that character and then that's the one moment of success bliss um achievement they get to be somebody who is somebody else as well as you know dealing with whatever's going on in their life and I think that's for me that's the bit that makes me go oh that's what games are about yeah and it's and it does the same for adults too mm -hmm. I played a lot of World of Warcraft during my master's degree which was quite stressful but you know wonderful um but it gave me a chance to detach from it i don't have to think about what i'm doing at school i don't have to think about what is happening with my friends i can be this awesome druid that runs around like a moonkin you know and i can have success and i can have a different set of friends who don't know anything about what's happening in my offline life and i can have this whole other whole other person to embody 
yeah what what about what about the concept of loneliness because i think that's one of the the other things that cropped up in terms of what what actually gets so again this kind of ties into that anti-social aspect doesn't mm-hmm. it in terms of the myth around you know if a child's playing a game they're going to be lonely I don't, I don't yeah know. yeah there's a classic term uh called alone together um so the idea is you know you're playing alone but everyone is playing alone and you're together in this community of misfits and nerds and geeks and you know hooligans mm. what have you however you want to describe it uh playing video games if you look at some of the research cross-sectionally sorry now that's my phone making noise um people who play games um do tend to report higher levels of loneliness so they are more lonely but that doesn't mean that games make them lonely in fact longitudinal research would suggest otherwise that because they are lonely they play games to mitigate the sense of loneliness to have mm-hmm. the sense of social community to expand their social networks if you follow the same gamers over time they don't become more lonely just because they're playing games so in this sense again it's about games for good it's about the social compensation and the social accommodations and the fact that technology allows us to sit in the comfort of our home and access thousands of other individuals who like playing in the same fantasy worlds that we do yeah well I was just thinking then that's a bit chicken and egg isn't it you know loneliness is why we play games or games is why we're lonely it's right and that's the case like so my PhD focused on the social aspects of gaming so loneliness was one of the things I was interested in and when you do research cross-sectionally which Again, it's not an academic podcast, but when you look at one person at one point in time and you look at the relationship between the two variables, you will see, oh, this person plays X number of hours, more hours a week, and they are also more lonely. So then you are left with the question, well, are games making them lonely or the other way around? Well, following the same person over time to answer that question is a much more expensive research project (laughs) that, you know... Money is hard to come by in academia, so there are fewer studies. Um... But of like the two or three I can think of off the top of my head who have managed to do that, uh, there's one from Lemons who followed six months and one that I did uh, in the University of Münster with Professor Quant who followed over two years. Um, loneliness was not made worse simply because of playing. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm just drawn to, so this morning I had a meeting with the um, online counselling uh, organization that I'm part of the research group with and we were we were just talking about my my research tends to be around children young people um I'm really privileged that because I'm a practitioner with with the smaller people I can get into this level of research that's rarely really visited by academics because of the the questions that I can ask and, and so yes. on and so forth but the bit of research that we're seemingly missing at the moment in terms of and I'm just thinking here about gaming are those people that would be classified as old and I'm thinking about actually how many how many games were sold? So I'm just thinking of the Nintendo DS here. Brain training games to prevent Alzheimer's and brain training games for old people and so on. I'm I'm wondering actually if somebody else would like to be <laughs> I'm gonna pass it out there to the world. Somebody else would like to do some research on what about loneliness in old age that does playing games yeah. help you with that being isolated because yeah. you're you're housebound or Yeah. There's a singular study, so we could use what? more that wow. I know of about gray-haired gamers. And it was Professor Quant and Jeffrey Wimmer and Jan van Looy from Belgium. Um, and that is exactly what it did. It mitigated loneliness. Oh, wow. Oh, again, yeah. brilliant. Could use, I know, because I know old people. I love old people. Um, but it could use more research in this area. So somebody please take that up. It's the, I only know of that one single paper. Yeah. Uh, well, we're, we're not for, I mean, if you're, if you're particularly my age, then we're, we're heading in. So in this country, we have um, a rating of, I think, 55 is where the company Age UK comes in. And that's where they say that you're definitely old. So 55 apparently is old. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I know, it's horrendous. Um, yeah. I think I've only got about um, 12 years left before, you know, I'm, I'm officially... You're out. <laughs> yeah, but there's, there's old very old very very old you know we have we have different levels um but i'm just thinking about actually the people that are currently 55 and i'm just doing the maths here very quickly 55 to 70 are the original gamers so that's your your ataris that uh, and i'm just thinking that the uh, ones that used to be at the back of record shops and pubs Mm -hmm. and um actually those gaming industry those people are kind of I wonder what they're doing in terms of how they play yeah. games versus the cohort that's probably between 50 and 30 at the moment yeah and the paper that I'm thinking of is with older people who 
definitely did not play games in their youth. So it would be interesting to see that as these mm. generations get older, because the, the biggest hurdle was the use of the technology, right? So they grew up with the games and they at least have some familiarity with the technology. Um, I imagine integrating it into their lives at later point in time would be easier uh, than it is currently. I must admit, I struggled going from a joystick to a handheld console. Could not, when they first came out, just could not get it out because I'm of the original ages where I think it was, um, uh, God, I mean, some of the games were like, um, Pac-Man and Space Invaders, but then there was another one called Track and Field, um, which was a, an Olympic athlete over in this country, and he just used to rag the, <laughs> the, the joystick. So you used to have suckers on the joystick to stick it to the table so that you could really oh, that's give it some whack. And, and I kind of look at children now who are playing with these controls, squeezing them, and I'm like, yeah, that's nowhere near the rage level I used to. <laughs> <laughs> I have broken several mice playing computer games. The yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, well, for, for me, there's also something, I'm just thinking here about ergonomics, that this is another thing I've noticed. So my, my children have grown up with gaming. It's, it's now well known that they're in their 20s. And, and so I've watched kind of the way that they've gone from the, the controllers that were very chunky and clunky mm-hmm. to these kind of svelte mice, you know, and the, the keyboard. And I, I, I'm, I'm in my 40s and I still look at the keyboard to make sure the keys haven't moved place. I know that they're still there. It says QWERTY. But when I'm typing, I still have to check that they're where they were a moment ago. And, and I'm, I'm fascinated by the fact that children have this haptic kind of ergonomic understanding and their motor skills, along with their cognitive skills, must be absolutely outstanding. This is the new generation of, you know, um, presidents and prime ministers and game designers. I'm, I'm really excited. Yes, yes. Um, me too. Like the the rate at which they're learning and the rate at which they're being exposed to changes in technologies and the way in which they're brain training inadvertently or uh, on purpose with these brain training games is nothing like what we had. Nothing. Yeah, I am. I am quite jealous. But you know that that just <laughs> to sleep out when I'm going. How do you do that? How did which? And that, this is what I was saying earlier. How, which button? I'm I'm constantly calling. Them, which button do I need to do for so and so? Bloody yeah. Yeah, it's easy. And, yeah. and they'll say, so I think the one that used to happen was X. No, X. No, X. When, I, when they were little. And I was like, I'm getting it. I'm getting it. And like, <laughs> That's so funny. It used to just be A and B. Okay. X was never around. Yeah. And, yeah. and then obviously swapping some multi-consoles. I've noticed mm-hmm. that children can do that as well. Yeah. In, in my therapy practice, I've got the varying ones. And they will go from one controller to another. And without looking, know that this button is similar to that one and that this one does that and... Yeah, and, yeah. and I just find that fascinating. Is it where is that stored? How do they know this? How are they yeah. kind of applying yeah. knowledge? And where's where's that happening in terms of we're, we're nowhere near at the understanding of brains in terms of what what children are act, actively doing. Um, yeah. And I, I find that so fascinating. I think we need to do more experiments on children, really. I'm, I'm all for that. Get them on. Get them wired up and get them sat in front of computer games and. <laughs> Well, see, you're in the industry. If I tried to do a study on children, there'd be way too much red tape for that to ever happen. Um, well, yeah, what I need to do is team up with people that have got the... I've always said yeah. I, want an, I want an fMRI in my back garden. Do you know, I'm yeah. so interested in, in kind of what goes on in the brain in terms of yeah. how, how we can say, ah, it's because of this. But You'll have to get something with uh, York. They have a whole neuroimaging center up at York. Yeah, well, I... When, when I spoke with David Zendel, that was one of the conversations that we had because he's teaching computer science up there. And I said, what, why is it that my industry has nothing to do with gaming? It's only because I used to be in that industry that I have this kind of crossover. Right. right. So it's, yeah, it really needs... And they're probably in the same building. I wouldn't mind at York. They'll probably be in the same building or if not opposite each other, they're just not, not talking. No, yeah, that's the thing. They're close to each other. When I did my PhD at York, oh, I was the weird one. Oh, I, I'm sure they remember me as the strange one who studied games. But now there are several people who are studying games. And Tom Hartley, who's a professor in the psychology department, he's doing stuff with games and neuroimaging now. So it's yeah. progressing. It's slowly seeping in there. I like to think that it was partly because of me, but <laughs> I don't know. Well, I would, I would take that accolade. <laughs> yeah, I'm just going to take it. Um, it, it was. It was because of me. Yeah. And to, to be honest, Rachel, I think that's one of the th- I think that in terms of the research that you did, in terms of kind of talking to Tony and, and lots of other people, I think that there we have been, a number of us have been kind of pioneers in this area in terms of where we've been from coming to, because I think that's the same with um, 
some of the podcasts that exist at the moment. So I listen to a lot around um, uh, Sam Harris is, has talked a little bit about kind of the neuroscience and what we're doing and, and Peter Diamandis. And I'm really interested in kind of how technology is going to help us with um, uh, the kind of climate change with the the reduction of poverty within the world it's that that bit excites me as well so i think i'm probably going to veer onto that next in but do you not see i'll ask you a question now do you not see that all this use of technology and the development of these kind of automated processes and where are we seeing technology going in all these different fields it's not also going to be met with the same moral panic that we've been experiencing and fighting in video games for 50 years 50 um, years we've been fighting. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. So to it's exciting, honest, but we won't see it. To be honest, um, in terms of, so my, I, I want to kind of do a stereotype about counsellors and psychotherapists now, that, that lots of them seem to be um, very, very frightened of this this technology thing. And I, I it's almost like watching a film where they go, well, will I break it if I touch it? Mm-hmm. And I'm, I'm saying, no, no, technology is so good and we can embrace it in so many ways. And um, and, and a I'm doing something around data protection at the moment and trying to educate therapists and saying, okay, so this technology is so good that actually we need to understand it because we can be caught out by something very simple. And I see that the advances that Apple have made in terms of recognizing numbers and so on. So this, this is an example I give Um, on my business phone. It's associated with the work that I've done for, I've, I've had this business number for a long time and I received a text message from somebody whose email I was associated with over six, seven years ago. And it cropped up with maybe, and then gave me the name of the person that it could be. And I thought, how interesting. I love the fact that Apple can do this, but actually I didn't ask it to do this. So right. that a lot about understanding about technologies, advances, sometimes catch me on the hop. And I've got to try and understand this in a way that I can then put it into layman's terms for people who are terrified yeah. I, th- I think when films exist like they do, you know, if we go with the Kurzweilian, um, uh, iRobot and the singularity and how right. AI and Terminator and, you know, it, it, it does create the fear. It makes a good story, but I think that's what creates the fear in the fir- first place. It creates the fear. And I feel like it's sprung, though, to even just milder advances in technology, like the use of machine learning. Which everybody calls AI, and it really, really gets my goat. <laughs> I mean, I, it is a form of AI. I mean, it's not a sentient robot, but it's yeah. automated. Well, yes, I, I, yeah. I helped with, um, so there was an app developed, and I think it's going to be more EU now because it's been changed a little bit in this country. And I helped with the language of this this uh, machine learning bot, and it would it would say to children, you know, you've just shared your phone number. It's not very sensible. And it was based around privacy. Um, and, and I was saying, you know, when you talk to children, you have to say it in a friendly tone. This is how you could do it. Um, and when I tried to explain this, people said, you mean it's artificial intelligence? And I said, no, it's not artificial intelligence. It's machine learning. It's an algorithm. Because yeah. we've, we've sat and programmed it. So I yeah. did. Um, I've done a couple of podcasts with um, Justin Sherman. So he works in and around machine learning. And we talked about what the difference between machine learning and AI is mm-hmm. and why why there's biases in machine learning where there wouldn't be in AI and, and so on and so forth, because I, I just think that idea and, and level is fascinating. So whilst whilst this is the gaming specials, uh, I'm going back to doing another podcast with him. I think I'm recording it uh, next week. So that might be a couple of weeks. And I can't remember what we're talking about this time, but it's another kind of philosophical level about the machine learning stroke AI debate. Yeah. Okay, I think, we're on topic. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's so interesting, though. It's so interesting to me. It's it's all it's all interrelated, isn't it? Because it yeah. won't be long before some of the things that you're doing in the gaming world. You, I mean, you might be playing against a bot, and you might not know it if the machine learning is that good. Yeah, yeah. And, it's and true. for me, I don't see anything wrong with uh, pong. If I go back and I say, yeah, but you used to play pong. Pong was a bloody robot in terms. Yeah. Of, it was computer learning simulation yeah. that you played against and and i really am showing my age today and i played pong um yeah and, and there's something about so we, we've been around this machine stuff for a long long time we're still afraid of it um yeah 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 right um well i think we've gone for about an hour 
um, yeah. which is a good podcast time as I'm, I'm learning because I tried to do this over half an hour. It never works. And I always say every week, either I'm going to give up on my internet provider or I'm going to give up on the idea of half an hour because it just doesn't work either way around. <laughs> However, my internet's held out, held out today. Really Yay. well. Good. Excellent. Um, thank you for coming on. And uh, yeah, thank you for your book. I will be hopefully uh, promoting it on uh, I do I do have it on my list of resources anyway when I go out and do teaching with therapists and teachers and social workers awesome. and so on anyway because um, I'm kind of saying you know have you noticed they're all US based and that none of them are English yet and yeah. <laughs> we need some more English ones yes. um, I did write it for the for the layman for anyone can read it so that was the whole point of it so hopefully it's, people it's a nice thin book as well so um it's when true. i hand, yeah i don't want to be handing my parents big thick you know no. and say go and read this um, and it was the biggest challenge was writing not being long-winded because <laughs> i am an academic by training and it was very difficult to make it short so i'm glad that you mm-hmm. found it to be short <laughs> it's, it, uh, it's a brilliant technique to be able to do that so you know thank you thank you for taking the time to write the book and everything and and yeah right thank you very much thanks this podcast was edited by rory kavanagh an audio enthusiast and music producer